before today's episode, check out this quick message from our friend Jamie Benning, host of the Filmumentaries podcast. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Filmumentaries podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam! The door opens. It's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Ackbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palma is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Adrian Wilkinson, who played Maris Brood in The Force Unleashed, as well as returning to the saga as the voice of the daughter in Star Wars Clone Wars and Rebels. From getting her start as a senior in high school to her work on Star Trek Renegades, Miss Wilkinson is full of great stories and so much passion for her work. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 111, Adrian Wilkinson. I don't want to take too much of your time, so I'd love to just kind of start really at the root of your love of acting and and where that kind of sprung from and how you first took your initial steps into this career. I'm happy to chat about it, though I always have to give a sort of disclaimer that it's just not a story that's repeatable. So, you know, people are always asking me, you know, how do I get into the business? And uh-huh. my story is just a, kind of a fluke set of circumstances. I was a dancer my whole life, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just a hobby. I absolutely loved it. It was my passion, but it was certainly not something I thought of as a career. And I was all set to go to business school and had all of these sort of executive type plans in my mind. And the week before my senior year of high school, I was getting my senior portraits for the yearbook. And the studio, this was a small town in the Midwest, and the studio that I was getting my photos taken at, it turns out that that weekend they had an acting class happening. Uh And the schools that I had previously been at were too small to have acting available. So I just thought, oh, that seems kind of fun. And uh, he kind of upsold me into buying this weekend workshop package. (laughs) And, and, you know, I was so young, I didn't really know how to say no. And I was interested. So anyway, I joined the workshop that weekend in this little town. And the shocker of all shockers is that this photographer had lived in Los Angeles and the acting class that he was teaching, he actually was having casting directors from Los Angeles fly out to teach this class. And I had no idea even what a casting director was, nor what a big deal this was. I just showed up completely green and wide eyed to this class uh-huh. and had an amazing time for the weekend. It was three days and we they gave us all kinds of material and it was exciting because it was 
TV shows that I was watching and had heard of. And, you know, it just sort of made it extra special. Well, one of the things that one of the pieces that they had us working on was this soap opera piece. And it turns out that it was something they were currently casting and they had gone back to Los Angeles and had been looking to cast this role for a while and just hadn't been able to find what they need. And they were reviewing the tapes from the weekend and long story short, they decided I was what they needed. (laughs) So out of this workshop, I got offered a job on a soap opera and you know, that's, I mean, that's kind of the end of the story because my parents were like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. You're not moving. (laughs) This is insane. So that was the end of it. But it was this moment where I suddenly realized that this was a career that was possible So instead of just this fictional dreamy thing, it was an actual, you know, real thing. And from that moment on, I just became obsessed with it. And for my entire senior year, I just was involved in any acting things that I could possibly find to be involved in, even just on my own. I mean, I think I own, I learned more than a hundred monologues and was just really focused on it. And as soon as I graduated high school, I moved to Los Angeles. So there you go. Uh, that doesn't happen to most people. And I think it's a testament to your talent and then also being prepared in that kind of situation. And I'd love to kind of shift to your first major, major role in the biggest show that was happening, which is Xena. Uh, and I'd love to, uh, how did you first get involved with that production? And then of course, the reception to not only your characters, but but that show is just so uh, monumental even now. Oh, thank you. Um, It holds a huge place in my heart. There was nothing special about the process. It was just a normal audition. The, you know, the story that's kind of legendary is that I actually turned down the audition a couple of times, which is not something I would ever do normally, (laughs) Uh but I had a conflict. I just literally could not... um, make it to the auditions because of a, a other job that I was doing. So I had passed on it twice. And then it was just ironic that it sort of was happening during the ho- Christmas holidays and that sort of thing. So their casting process took longer than it normally would. And they still hadn't found what they wanted. So they came back to me and this time I was available. And the other hilarious thing is that, you know, I, in the end, the role was to play the daughter of Lucy Lawless, the daughter mm-hmm. of Xena. But that was top secret. So one of the reasons why I hadn't been very excited to audition for this piece is that I thought I looked too much like Lucy Lawless for the role that they were describing, which was to play the nemesis of Xena. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, they always cast a blonde or a redhead against a brunette. They're not going to cast, you know, anyway. Right. So that's the irony is, of course, I didn't have all the information. And I went in and it was... you know, kind of a a fast process at the point that I became involved. And it wasn't until I was on the plane flying to New Zealand, they had dropped off scripts that morning. And it was on the plane reading the script that I found out I was playing uh, Lucy's daughter. So kind of amazing. Obviously, acting in front of the camera still requires, obviously, voiceover and ADR after the fact and everything. And so I feel like a jump and a continuation of that into voice acting might not be the biggest jump of all time. But then especially as we move into the incredible video game work that you did, and then, you know, as we talk about Force Unleashed, what was that like for you going into that world of voice acting? And how did you kind of start defining your voice? Because I feel like every single role that you have is varied. <laughs> There's no, I'm not like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a you're not typecast, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that's a very hard thing to do a lot of the times. And I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about how you've carved that out for yourself. 
Wow, I appreciate that. Um, you're right. The origin of it really did start. I mean, I guess I can say it kind of started with Xena because the majority of that show shot outdoors. Mm-hmm. And essentially 100% of anything you shoot outdoors, you have to completely redo the dialogue for in post. Mm-hmm. So I had immediately upon you know jumping into the world of acting, I was doing a lot of ADR work. So I just sort of got it. And apparently there's a few people that where that's just not a skill that is comfortable for them, but it's not something I ever had a problem with it. It's something that I am quite natural at, and I'm good at recreating those moments. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's just a lot of imagination work and just really like my goal is if I have to do ADR, I want it to be even better than it was on the day. To Mm -hmm. me, it's just another way to make the the project even more crisp and perfect. So I get excited by that, by that instead of, you know, feeling it's a burden where some people are really kind of uncomfortable with that process. So it was a few years later when um, just one of my reps was curious if I wanted to try voiceover work. And I'd always been interested, but it just, I had been shy about it because in my mind, those who are considered voiceover artists are the people that have a stable of 50 character voices they can do. And I knew that that wasn't me, but you know, that's when I just became a bit more educated on the process and that there's so many more characters nowadays, particularly with video game work where it's shades of your own voice as opposed to creating entirely different sounds. So you can certainly have both, but but it's just, it was lovely to me to understand that I had more skill in, available in that area than I even realized. And, and yeah, I just kind of jumped into it. And I will audition for anything that comes to me that, that resonates with me. And there are certain things that, that show up and I know are definitely not mine. And so I, you know, let those pass. But the ones that I think I have a chance at, I definitely always give it my all. And it's lovely that you say there's been a lot of shades because I, I'm, I kind of sometimes hesitate to admit that to myself because, because I still am not a person who does a wide variety of types of voices. And yet I do do a wide variety of types of characters so even though the the voice work maybe is has more margins than otherwise might be noticed the the characters themselves i mean the type of games that i play or that pardon me the type of voices that i voice in games are quite varied so so yeah i i, I guess i'm i'm lovingly agreeing with you and, <laughs> and reframing this in my mind <laughs> no, that's perfect. And I mean, it's interesting then, of course, you have a lot of experience with voice acting. And then when you get an opportunity to audition for The Force Unleashed, obviously, that's not just voice acting. I'd love to dive a little bit into that process because it is, at that time, very groundbreaking of how they made that video game possible. What was the first connection you had with that project? And how did the, the first part of that audition go? Well, the funny part about The Force Unleashed is that, it, so it was an in-person audition, and with voice work, that almost never happens. With voice work, either you know you're sending in an, uh, a file, or you're going to your agency and they're creating a file for you. You're just you're putting down an audio track. Where this one, they required that you audition in person, even though it was still just a uh, just a voice process is what I was sort of told. But they did show me the character art, and it was shocking how much I look like this character. It was as if they had used me as the model. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is another one of those moments where it was just kind of, you know, buckle your seatbelt because fate is taking over because 
You know, I didn't have to do any work. The genetics just did the work for me by making me already look like the character. So, you know, that was kind of amazing. So the, the, the audition was done in a voiceover studio, but it was also filmed. And, you know, we did talk a lot about physicality. At that point, I was aware that it would be more than just voiceover if it moved forward. And that was kind of it. I mean, they, I got along incredibly well with everyone and was, I loved the character. I just think the backstory of Maris Brood is phenomenal mm-hmm. and she deserves so much more attention than she's had <laughs> the chance to get so far. Yeah. So I was absolutely obsessed with the idea of being able to play her. And then months pass. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, the, the long story short is that I can't remember exactly how many months, but it was at least four months later that I found out that I had actually booked the role that day. They had decided on me that day. They just didn't tell me until the process was ready to move forward, mm-hmm. which was several months later. And then we jumped in with both feet and it was amazing wow. because the whole thing, um, you know, the voice work we did in various locations, but the mocap work was all done at the Presidio and mm-hmm. up at LucasArts and you know, we got to spend time at the ranch and it just everything about it was as magical or surpassed whatever magic you were hoping could be there. So it was an incredible experience to be part of. I mean, obviously with Maris and her her whole look is just really, it was instantly iconic. Was there further prosthetics that you had to go through? Was there any like makeup tests which is, again, odd for video games, but is, was that ever part of that process as well? Well, first of all, I want to give a, a shout out to Amy Beth Christian Christensen, um, mm-hmm. oh, Christensen. Uh, because she was the artist that created Maris from the mm-hmm. beginning. So, I mean, massive shout out to her because, I mean, you're right. Hot damn. She's incredible. Uh, there was this is the irony is that, you know, the technology was brand new and we were all learning it as we used it. That's everyone, all of the artists, all of the creators all of the actors involved. So um, Maris uh, did have some prosthetics and they wanted to incorporate that. So we did that. So we did the prosthetics. Um, you can find some photos of me online with, you know, little red horns and, <laughs> you know, some sort of kabuki-esque makeup because, mm-hmm. you know, she had this incredibly pale skin and, and you know, with all of these bright red makeup accents. But the problem was, in the end, the technology at the time was not able to read the makeup correctly. Mm. So in the end, I think I'm the only one that went through this, that I had to do the entire process that we did to create that video game. I had to do it twice because I did the whole thing with makeup. Mm -hmm. And then we had to do the whole thing without makeup. Mm -hmm. So just so they made sure that they had exactly what they needed. And, you know, you can kind of tell because... You know, if you look at the other characters, some of the, you know, like you look at Sam Whitworth's character, he looks exactly like Sam, where because what happened with my character is they had to then take me and then layer upon my face a layer of digital makeup. Right. And so, you know, it doesn't quite look like me in the in the way that the in the end, um, as specifically as the way the other characters who were barefaced look. But nonetheless, you know, it takes <laughs> away nothing from how right. cool the entire experience was. I mean, how long did that whole process take? Obviously, you mentioned Sam Witwer, Natalie Cox, like incredible actors and must have been an incredible time really putting together things that, again, had not been done before. And, and motion capture was still in, in a very early infancy, especially for video games. Um, right. What was that like for you? And, and really, obviously, acting is acting, but I'm sure 
or there are certain certain uh, things that you had to add or subtract from your performance in order for it to be successful when translated to a video game. True. Um, you know, and there were different parts of it that lasted different amounts of time. I mean, we did voice work, uh, I want to say approximately for a year and a half, something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but the actual mocap experience, I want to say it was two weeks ish. Um, cause you know, we are talking a few years ago, <laughs> so it's a, little, <laughs> a little vague in my mind, but right. I want to say it was about two weeks of work that we did something up at the Presidio up in San Francisco. And, you know, it, again, we were all figuring it out as we went along and what we ended up doing, uh, you know, the technology took was one part of it. We sort of did this all in stages, but we also did all of the recording. And this was so satisfying because, you know, normally with voice work, particularly in video games, it's all solo. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you are given a script that has only your lines. You aren't even given context. And it's up to the director in the room to help give you context for each line. You're doing it completely on your own. You're maybe every once in a while, you'll get to hear a sample of another actor, but essentially it's all just you and your imagination and the direction of those in the room. Room. But this was the first time, and still to this day, one of the only times I've had the luxury of having the other actors in the room working mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen is one of we would only have one actor on microphone at once. So one actor would be, you know, the, the one who was the focus. And you're still limited because, of course, you're you're limited by the direction of the mic. So your movement is contained, but there was still, a, you know, there was a bit more freedom in physicality than there would normally be with voiceover. But more than that, it was just that you had the other actors in the room that you were actually acting off of. <laughs> so that was just exquisite. And, you know, it makes for a much more satisfying experience. But also, I think for anyone who's, you know, playing these games, it makes for a much more satisfying experience playing them and listening to yeah. them and just being part of it. Because, it, you know, there's, it's not a manufactured moment. It's really a moment that was happening in the room. Right. So, you know, I, I loved every moment of it and it, and it also let us play, you know, we yeah. could sort of have more ideas and try different takes of, you know, trying delivery in different ways to see if it added to the story. And and that really made a difference as well. Yeah, definitely. And of course the, the character herself is, is uh, alive as far as we know. And I would love to see, that return at some point, um, because as you mentioned, there's so much backstory and so much story still left to tell, I'm sure. of Oh, completely. And I mean, let's be honest, there's no way, no matter what happens to her story, there's no way that it's not interesting. There's no way that yeah. it's not super cool. I mean, you know, you could find her, maybe she's now like the mother of seven and, you know, like, you know who yeah. knows what she's doing? Or maybe, yeah. you know, there's mass murder on a new planet, or maybe there, you know, maybe she's now an international spy. I mean, we don't know what's yeah, going on, no with Maris, but we know it's interesting. <laughs> has to be, has to be. And I mean, this really then leads into, because of course your work is so incredible on Force Unleashed. And then, uh, you did a lot of uh, voice work for the older public game as well as Gianna. Um, and then how did the conversation come up to then rejoin with Sam Witwer and work on the Clone Wars as, as the daughter, as the light side? <laughs> Well, this is the hilarious thing about working on Star Wars projects is that everything, every moment is top secret, even from right. those involved. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, so the truth is I had, I knew that I had been offered a role on the Wars, and I knew I was saying yes, but that's all I knew. They wouldn't tell me anything about her, literally nothing. Uh -huh. So I showed up at the studio 
And that's when I got the script. And that's when I found out is playing a daughter. And that's when I saw Sam. And that's when we realized <laughs> we were working on it together. And I said, who that's are you great. playing? And he said, let me look. And he said, oh, I'm playing somebody named Son. And I was like, oh, I'm daughter. We must be related. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So there really is, you know, it's a joyous experience because you're finding out in the moment, you know, it's almost like you're watching the episode with everybody else for the first time. But, you know, it's just happening when you're recording it. But again, it was so fun because you're, at least in my experience, I was nervous because I'm a, I like to be prepared. I like to be someone who, you know, has all my ducks in a row and has ideas and, you know, I'm coming to the room with a plan and that's not possible in this situation because I didn't even know what I was doing until I got there. And, you know, then we jumped immediately into recording and the Clone Wars was such a joy because again, it had that magical experience where the entire cast was in a room together recording at once. So again, most animation doesn't have that luxury. Most animation right. is, is recorded one character at a time. But Clone Wars, at least the parts that I was involved in, you know, the entire cast was in a room together with uh, Dave Filoni, with, you know, all of these magical people that, you know, on the day are just creating everybody's boundaries as much as they can because it's such a beloved project and because it has such history and you know they want the fans to be incredibly pleased and that show in particular was just so cutting edge and so political and you know just so multi-layered and just a joy to be part of without a doubt the mortis arc itself i think is is probably the standout arc of of the entire show and i think it goes a lot with what you were kind of it's it's the force and the embodiment of the force and what the chosen one prophecy meant and i loved then seeing that continue and seeing the daughter's legacy of like just instantly kind of becoming shorthand almost for the light side or for a force that was around everyone and so you see that obviously in rebels with the convoy and with morai and and with Ahsoka's right, right. journey as well your role in, in rebels is different because you're technically dead in clone wars right um but seeing the daughter return in that way must have been very impactful for you to kind of see that that character's journey is still um really playing a huge part in the lives of, of characters that we, we love. Oh, just incredibly joyous. And, it, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, truly, it's getting a second life. It's getting to mm -hmm. come back and and know how powerful that character is because the, you know, the the legacy lives on just in a slightly mm -hmm. different way. And, but equally in, in a just as powerful way and just as meaningful way and symbolic way. So absolutely. I mean, learning that she was able to continue in this way was incredibly <laughs> exciting for me and just how much the fans love it. I mean, yeah. you know, that's the part that's so incredible. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly aware of the small part that I played and, or I guess the other way I should say it is just, I'm incredibly aware of how many people are involved and how many people get credit for how cool this character is. And uh -huh. I'm just so glad that I get to be a piece of that, you know? Yeah, no, it, it really is incredible that you've been able to work on multiple iconic characters for Star Wars. And I, I mean, as you mentioned, a huge part of that is is all the talented people that work on it. But if, of course, it would be lifeless without without your work as well. So so really, that's, that's something not to um, disregard at all, because it is oh. rather incredible. Well, I'll take it. And you're right. It really is. You know, if I ever want, if I'm ever having a day when I don't feel lucky, I just have to think about that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I would be remiss not to switch gears. This is a Star Wars podcast, but say Star Trek Renegades uh, was was for for being what that was such a joyous way to reintroduce 
uh, legacy characters and then also your character um, being the daughter of Khan. <laughs> Pretty cool. Exactly. I know. There's a lot of daughters going on here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, wait, I'm seeing a trend here. Uh, what uh, was that process like for you? How did you get involved with that project and, you know, being able to work on Star Trek and Star Wars? Uh, pretty, uh, pretty unique. Um, you're right. It's yet another example of me being in the right place at the right time and being lucky and just being willing to, you know, jump in with both feet. Um, so Star Trek Renegades, um, okay. So it, there's so many pieces and parts to this. It's such a, it's such a thing to unpack. First of all, yeah. okay. I played Captain Lexa Singh, who right. is the genetic daughter of Khan. And you know, this already is an incredibly cool story. I, through conventions, I had known some of the Star Trek cast, of course, and I knew that Tim Russ was going to be directing this. And I freaking adore Tim Russ. He's so amazing. Huh. And the fact that he was going to revive his character in this. And I was incredibly excited about it. Um, the backstory that we were told is that CBS had been interested in possibly reviving the Star Trek franchise at that time, which had been, I think, more than a decade uh, without Star Wars on TV. Uh, pardon me, Star Trek on TV. <laughs> and um, at the time, they were just wanting something different. And so this was this combination experience where this was an independently funded project, but it was funded to be a pilot for a, a feature length pilot for a potential new Star Trek show for CBS. Mm -hmm. So it was simultaneously little and big. <laughs> and, you know, there were all of these parts with it because I had no idea about fan funding or any of that when I was asked to be part of it. I was just told, right. we have this budget, we have this character, would you do it? And I said, yes. And, you know, it's, it was a tiny budget. And we shot this thing, I think in 14 days, we shot this wow. feature length film. The budget was teeny tiny. There were amazing people involved. There were lots of uh, Trek actors that revived their characters. And there were also some brand new characters created. I love the story. And in fact, I think mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of similarities with Maris Brood and with Captain Lexa Singh. Mm -hmm. They, you know, both were sort of these on the surface level kind of evil, edgy characters, but both of them were, you know, absolutely good and golden at heart. You know, Maris started out as a full Jedi and it's only because she, you know, everyone she knew was murdered and she lost her mind being on this planet for years by herself that she, you know, went to the dark side. And it was the same thing where, you know, you're sort of introduced to Captain Lexa Singh as this, what you think might be an evil character, but what you find out is she's the captain of a black ops team. And so she is doing all of this pretty ugly stuff, but she's doing it at the request of the Federation. So it's actually right. for the greater good. So there's all of these really interesting layers in there. And then of course, you know, the, the end of the story that's kind of sad is that we finish this project and there's all kinds of political stuff that goes on behind the scenes when it's in post and with other Star Wars, uh, pardon me, Star Trek projects <laughs> that, right. um, you know, were happening at the time that also created kind of a bit of chaos. But in the end, CBS absolutely loved what we did and we thought we had a chance to be the new show. But for them, in the end, it made financial sense to do their own from the very right. beginning concept. So that's when you know, they created Discovery and which I'm thrilled about. I'm thrilled that the franchise gets to keep going, but it is definitely a bummer that, right. that uh, you know, Lexa Singh had only her, her limited experience. So I definitely would yeah. love to be back in the Trek world in some juicy new way. And again, I would love to see this character have more life. I mean, I, I just really think there's some incredible 
plot points that they came up with that could have been explored more. So I hope that she gets more traction too. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to, you know, end this by by talking about upcoming projects or how fans can find you. Uh, your website, very up to date and very uh, well curated, which is always a, a nice thing for me when I'm researching guests. Oh, fantastic. What's coming up for you and, uh, and what's next? Um, sure. Thank you so much for asking. So pretty much if you want to find me online, look for Yo Adrian and you'll find all my social media. <laughs> Uh, and my website is adrianwilkinson.com. Uh, I'll give a shout out to two projects. Um, uh, in March, I had a film called Dreamcatcher that came out in the United States. And I think just this week, actually, it's now available worldwide. So you can find that streaming on all the different platforms. It's called Dreamcatcher. And it's a sort of sexy thriller where I play this incredibly self-centered agent who, <laughs> is, you know, just takes, uh, I was going to say, takes no prisoners, but I think she actually takes all prisoners. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it's kind of a fun romp if you're looking just for a little escapism. And then my most recent project is an absolute love affair that I've been having with a bunch of friends for about five years. We've been doing this, this web series called Sidetracked, which we have mm-hmm. just officially finished. And wow. just today, actually, our one of our episodes is debuting at uh, the American Black Film Festival. So wow. you can find that online via their website. I think it's abff.com. And the entire series will soon be available online. And I just could not be more proud of everyone involved. It's Tracy Toms, it's Wes Ramsey, it's Jim Holdridge, it's Edie Brown. It's just all of these incredibly talented mm-hmm. people and such a fun series. It's really great. It's a. It's mainly about four friends in one day, all of their interconnected lives of what, you know, just it's the crazy way your life goes sideways in a day and how you and your friends try to get back on track. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, Miss Wilkinson, thank you for taking the time and telling your stories. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you again in the future in Star Wars or Star Trek or wherever it might be. But we'll put all those links in the show notes so people can check out what you're doing now. Beautiful. Um, From your lips to the producer's ears. So (laughs) let's get that happening. (laughs) Look at that, yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks again to Miss Wilkinson for giving her time for this interview. As we mentioned, definitely head to her website for more information about her upcoming projects. If right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means so much and really helps the show out somehow. Uh, next week is my interview with Nick Maley, that Yoda guy who helped create and sculpt so many of the creatures that we love from the original trilogy, including, well, Yoda. So until then, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.